you can get them two ways. You can go through every episode and download them one at a time, or if you're a Members Brigade member, you can get them in groups of 24 in zip files, all ready to go and drop into your iTunes or wherever else you want to listen to the show. Um, you also get 20 members-only videos. You also get over $100 worth of free eBooks. You also get discounts from 15 supporting vendors, such as discounts from SafeCastle, discounts from Western Botanicals, discounts from Shelf Reliance, discounts uh, from uh, Seeds of Change, discounts from High Mowing Organic Seeds, and they just keep going and going and going. Uh, some of the discounts are, you know, 7%. Some of them are 50%. Uh, but there's a lot of value there. So I really ask you to consider doing that because uh, it does help support the show. Your cost to support the show, $50 a year or $5 a month. You know what that comes out to? About 20 cents an episode. So if every time you listen to this you say, hey, that's worth two dimes, consider joining the brigade. With that, let's move on. My first question isn't really a question. It's kind of follow-up from yesterday. I said kind of a, a, as an offhanded comment yesterday. That I knew how to fix our public education system, and I'm really thinking about numbers that work here in Texas, so I'll give you the Texas facts, and you can decide how that would work for your state yourself. Um, we spent about $74 billion last year on education in the state of Texas. Now, all the surveys that I see tell me that comes out to uh, a little bit less than $8,000 a student. Some say 7600 some say 7500 some say 7800 uh, but that's for last year. Um, and my belief is that number is wrong. Uh, because $74 billion uh, is, is, a lot of, is a big pie to be cut up. And the facts are we had a really big jump in how much money we were spending um, between, let me see, let me pull this up. I don't want to give you the wrong information here. But to give you an example, in 2007, our spending levels were about $59 billion. And in 2009, our spending levels jumped up to uh, $74 billion. So we had a huge jump. We didn't have that kind of an increase in population, especially among school-age students. So let's even use the $7,500 number per student. Of that funding, because this is critical, because as soon as you do this at a state level, you're going to get pressure from the federal government. The federal government gave us about $8.8 billion of the $74 billion. Let's call that roughly 10% to make these numbers easy. I know it's a little bit more. It's more like 12 and a half or whatever, but we'll call it 10%. So we'll say of the 7500 per student, the federal government's kicking in, and we'll jack it up a little bit, $800, right? So that means that the state of Texas spends on its own students, uh, what would that be, $6,700 a student, okay? Very, very simple. That's roughly what we spend a student. Again, I know these numbers are not accurate. I know the number is higher because I know there's administrative costs that are being attributed to education but not put down to that per student level. But let's use the published numbers. So now we have $6,700 a student being spent in the state of Texas by the state of Texas to run our public school systems. Very, very simple to understand that, right? Well, here's the first thing I would do. I would be prepared to do it at 6700 versus 7500 And the reason is because as soon as I tell you what I'm going to tell you, um, what's going to happen is the federal government's going to start putting the squeeze on us. And I, if I were the governor of this state, I would stand up under the Tenth Amendment and say, you're not telling us how to do this. And if they said, we're taking away your educational dollars, I would say, cram them up your ass. I would still fight to keep them, but publicly I would say, cram them up your ass and be prepared to lose it. So now I'm working with a little bit less per student. But, as you can see, 
The vast majority of the money is coming from within our state. The next thing I would do is I would set up a program, a voucher program, that would not be any way experimental at all. It would be 100% open to anybody that wanted to partake of it, and it would provide any parent that wanted to put their their, uh, student into a private school $5,000 a year to do that with. The money would be paid directly to the institution. It would be paid up to $5,000 a year. Anything beyond that, the parent is responsible for themselves. Now, the socialists will scream, oh, my God, look at all the money coming out of the public education system. But it's not money coming out of the public education system. It's money being spent on the public education system. We're just changing its form. The schools can now be run privately, and the schools can now compete, but... Let's just play the socialist game for a minute, and let's see how the math works out. If I have a school, let's say with a 1,000 students in it, small school, for this state anyway. I know that's a big school for a lot of people. That was a big school for me when I was in school. But let's say I have a school with a 1,000 students in it. And if 500 of them take advantage of this program and leave, right, we would have 500 times 5,000 dollars each that they take with them when they leave, which would equal about $2.5 million, right? 500 times 5,000, 2.5 million. So the socialist goes, oh my God, 2.5 million is being stolen from the government. No, it's the people's money being given back to them at their discretion. But even if we say it that way, let's look at the reality for the 500 students who are left behind. Remember, this is based on the federal government pulling their money out. The state of Texas is now spending $6,700 a student, but we have now let 50% of the students in this school leave and take $5,000 a student with them. What does that do to the overall numbers? Well, I know this math is confusing, but follow me here because it's really not. Okay, 500 students left. They took $5,000 a piece with them, $2.5 million, Okay. The, the initial spending on the, on the students in the school was $6.7 million, right? Because it's $6,700 a student. So we take $6.7 million, right? We subtract it by uh, 2.5 uh, 2. million, and we get $4.2 million. So there's $4.2 million now left to fund the 500 students that remained in the public education system, which now comes out to $8,200 a student. So by giving parents the option to pull out half of the students and giving them a portion of the money being spent on their children to spend at their discretion, the spending per student left for students within the public education system just went up by almost $2,000 or roughly 20%. More than the amount of money that the federal government is giving us that they would then say, you know what, if you're not going to play by our rules, Texas, we'll take your money away. Fine. Take it. Now, again, I'm going to fight to get it back because it, that money came out of Texas. Trust me, this state puts more money into the union than the union puts back into the state. But if they do it, they do it. I'll live with the consequences. Now what I have is a more robust public education system. Now, people say, well, there'll be school closings. Of course there will. There'll be less students to, to put into the schools. Some of the schools will get closed and get sold to private organizations, which will then improve them and compete for parents' business. But what you would have if you did this, you create a market overnight. Now, I know some people are going to sit here and go, oh, I mean, the taxpayers, the taxpayers are already funding this, folks. 
This is already a system in place. I'm working with the money that's on the table to make a better system. Please give me that latitude. Hear me out. There would be schools everywhere. Now, we would have a certain curriculum that students at the end of each grade year must have a certain level of proficiency, and that would be overseen by the state of Texas to make sure that it happens. The same way that homeschool children are today. But a, stu- a school would have massive flexibility in what they do. Now, do the kids get a ride on the bus, or do they have to be taken to school by the parent? That's up to the school and the parent. So if the school wants kids from a certain area, they have to provide transportation, incentivize parents. You see how it works. It's a free market. But one school might uh, have a program where they, they only educate children, let's say, from the first grade level to the fourth grade level, and they keep it that way on purpose. And there's no interaction, just like a public school. Another school might have a place where they educate children from first to ninth grade, and as students get older, they take on a teaching role and help teach the students in the younger grades to reinforce their prior year's learning. Some schools may offer a massive amount of independent study so that when the child is doing uh, a thesis, they have tremendous flexibility on what they do the thesis on. Some schools may have prayer in the schools and be private uh, schools, with a religion component, because it's not public money. The money is being dedicated to the child's education, but put under the discretion of the parent. I know some people are going to have a problem with this. I don't care if you have a problem with this. How's our current education system working out? If a parent wants that for their child, fine. Simple, easy, done. If a parent doesn't want it, then they can go to a school that's 100% secular. They can go to a school that teaches comparative religion so that they learn about all faiths. They can go to a school that teaches one faith. It's the parents and the child's business what goes into their mind. Even when they're in our public education system, parents should have that choice to say, you're not going to teach my, my child this particular thing unless it's a critical skill. Math, science, right? Writing. Th- those are your critical skills. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. With some history thrown in. Some schools would focus on U.S. history. Some would focus on world history. The schools would do whatever they wanted within the guidelines set by the state for a basic core curriculum and have massive flexibility with that. And what you'd have is schools mailing parents brochures. Send your student here. This is what they will learn. And you would have parents that were able to sit down and make a decision in the best interest of their child. And I'll guarantee you, that the average price of tuition at these institutions throughout the state of Texas would be $4,999.99. That would be the average. Now, there would be schools that would add a little bit more, and they would be $6,000 a year. And there are schools that would add a little bit more, and they'd be seven. And and parents could make a decision whether to pay the overage or not. It's up to them. Now, I know people are going to poke holes in this, but what I've just shown you is a way to give parents flexibility, allow competition into the education system, and for the children that are still in the general public education system, create more funding and separate your state, because your state can make these numbers work too, separate your state from the federal bureaucracy that breathes down the state's neck and gives the state mandates of what to do with the education system. Now, I'm open to better ideas than mine. I'm not running for the governor of the state of Texas. I don't want to be governor of the state of Texas. This is just an idea. But I think it's one of the best methods that we could use to improve the education system. The big point I wanted to make to you is whenever this concept is brought up, 
the opponents of it say it diverts funds from the public education sector and it weakens the public education sector and the kids that are still there will suffer. What I've just shown you conclusively is any amount of money that goes out that's less than the amount of money being spent per student currently in the, in the function raises the price per student of funding. So the school system, if it lost half of its students to private education, which is probably a pretty decent estimate, would have $2,000 more a student to work with what they have left. Now, what about all the jobs? Well, the best teachers are going to go out and work for these private schools. And then the public education system, which has more money to work with than the private sector, will have to fix its problems so it can compete to remain stationary as well. And that's what it would happen. Now we have competition in both directions. And the education system would improve. It would absolutely improve because competition improves things. There you go. There's that answer. I know it's long, but so many of you wanted to hear it, I decided to go ahead and do it today. Here's an interesting one from a fellow we'll call Craig because that's his first name, but we won't give his last. He says uh, his employees and him have been talking about things and want my opinion. One, is it better to put surplus money toward debt, retirement, or invest in preparedness, beans, bullets, bullion, etc., or do both? If so, what is a good strategy? For me, we'll have all personal debt except the mortgage retired in six months, just killed a third of four student loans. I do owe 300000 on a mortgage, but it was just refinanced. So back to 30 years on that note. My assistant has a lot more personal debt and refinanced her home last year, 29 years left on it. Her husband recently got the debt-free bug and is now on board with paying down debt, but they have no preps in place. Okay, um, my belief is that you should have enough preps to at least endure the things that are most likely to happen, and your priority right now for both of you, because neither one of you sound like you're enamored with credit card debt, would be to get at least 30 days' worth of food in the house get a good emergency uh, blackout kit together, lights and things like that, put together a bug out bag, uh, the basic stuff that you need to be able to stay put or move out on a 30-day period. That's not that tough to do. That's not that big of an investment. Once that's done, the majority of any surplus funds you can create should be going toward paying down your debt, any debt that exists outside of your home mortgage. I'm very okay with a person with a home mortgage simply saying, i got a 30-year mortgage, and I'm going to take my mortgage, and I'm going to multiply it by about 1.25, and I'm going to pay one and a quarter times my mortgage payment, because that will take more than 10 years off your mortgage. Actually, I think it comes out to something like 14 years I worked it out to. That's one way to do it. You can even just do things like pay your mortgage twice a month, cut in half, and that will make one extra payment a year. And that has a fairly good effect. I think it's like seven years of shortening of your mortgage. But I want something extra going to that mortgage. As long as you plan on being in the house for a long time. If you're planning on selling the house and downgrading your living conditions any time in the next ten years, you're probably better off holding the mortgage. Okay? But if you're going to be there 20 years or more, then it makes sense to put the equity in the home and get ready to get out. But I cannot tell a person who has zero preps to put all of their surplus funding into debt elimination when they're so exposed. They're just so massively exposed. So my feeling is to get rid of all, you know, minor preps, kind of you have to split it at that point. 
and you get enough preps together but pay off the consumer level debt. Once you're down to just houses and cars, you can spend a lot more money on getting your preps taken care of. But focus on the prepping aspects that don't cost a lot of money while you're eliminating at least the car debt as well. So gardening doesn't take a lot of money. Building a greenhouse is relatively inexpensive. You know, it's less than a house payment. I'll put it to you that way, uh, especially a small one. Uh, there's a lot of little projects that you can do to educate yourself and extend your survivability without spending a lot of money. So focus on the low-cost ones. Now, as far as saving for retirement, you split saving for retirement from investing in beans, bullets, and bullion. Investing in bullion is part of your retirement. So when you take money and buy gold or silver with it to put away in store, it might be used for barter if it ever comes to that, but long-term, it's part of your retirement and long-term, not even retirement, it's part of your long-term savings portfolio. I want people to stop thinking in terms of all the money you're putting away being for retirement. It's for the future, whatever the future may bring. That's why I don't want 100% of your savings, you know, going into 401Ks and IRAs and SEP programs and all these other tax-deferred retirement age uh, financial vehicles. I don't want it all there. I think it's foolish to put it all there. If you put 60% there, I'm okay with it. 70 I'm starting to get a little bit worried, but I guess that's a 70% of your contributions go to a tax-deferred vehicle and 30% go into a long-term quality savings vehicle, gold, mutual fund stocks, yes. Highly selective with that, cash, CDs, anything that's a long-term financial holding tool, right? Bonds, bonds in a foreign nation that's more stable than our own, I, you know, whatever. But I don't care if the, the, the allocation looks the same inside the retirement account and outside the retirement account. So basically, if you had five places money went inside the retirement account, you had the exact same five vehicles on the outside, I want... Minimum 30% of your savings outside of your retirement account. And people say, Jack, but all these tax advantages and everything. First of all, those jackasses are talking more and more about coming after that money someday. And people have said, well, they can never tax you on it. That would be going back on, you know, people would stand for that. They can never seize it. But you know what they're talking about doing? They're talking about taking, like, 401Ks and Roth IRAs and forcing elderly people with those vehicles to put a portion of their money into a fixed government annuity that will guarantee them an income for the rest of their life. So you're sitting there with a half a million dollars in your IRA when you retire. The government comes and says, we're going to take 200000 put it away from you, and we're going to send you basically like a new type of Social Security check using your own money. But this will be guaranteed, even if the money runs out, it'll never run out. We'll pay you till you die. That's not what I want done with my money. Too bad. We're the government. We can do what we want. They're talking like that already. That's one reason I don't want to. The other reason is, if you're 30 and you just have maybe 60 days worth of savings put in a little cash account somewhere, that's great. But one day you may need that money. And from 30 to 40, people working a reasonable income job can easily put away two, $300,000. Now, if you're 40 and you've got that much money in a 401k or a Roth IRA... Um, you can't get it till you're 59 and a half without penalty. You'll pay twice what you take out to get your hands on it. Wouldn't it be great if when you needed that new car and it was $30,000, instead of spending $45,000 in car payments on it, you just went out, went out to the car lot and said, $26,000. The guy goes, no, you got 26000 cash, take it or leave it. 
And if he says no, you leave and go find somebody who will sell you that car for 26000 and write him a check and walk off the lot with the car with no debt attached to it and begin building that savings back up and take the money that would be going in a car payment and use it to rebuild up that savings. Makes a hell of a lot more sense. Well, you lose that flexibility, whether it's buying a house, whether it's improving a house, no matter what it is, you lose that flexibility when you lock your money up. And these financial vehicles like life insurance where you can borrow it from yourself, I don't want to borrow my own money. I want to spend my money when I choose to. That's why I want that money split up. So there's the best answer I can give you on that. Um, the next one uh, I just answered, uh, as, which was about nationalizing retirement accounts. Uh, the next one, it, it's the same guy here, Craig, says, Do you know any regions of the country that make good locations for the prepper, affordable land, climate, agriculture, libertarian laws, and neighbors? In my browsing the country, I think southern Missouri, Arkansas, and eastern Washington fit, fit the criteria, but I wonder if you know of any other areas. Um, those are three really good ones. Uh, if you think about it, my retreat is in Arkansas. There's a reason. And I actually would tell you that Texas, from a standpoint of liberty uh, and overall quality of many things that are government-related, is actually a better choice than Arkansas. But land in Texas is very, very expensive, and a lot of the state is very hot, very dry, and very prone to tornadoes. Uh, I moved to a rather wet region of Arkansas up in the mountains, which there's still a lot of tornadoes in Arkansas, but once you get up in the mountains, if you look at a touchdown map, that goes way down through the floor, and I was able to buy more land in Arkansas for a price I couldn't buy a house here on a tenth of an acre lot with. I got five acres for $74,000 with a house on the end of a private road with a locked gate. I can't do that in Texas. So it was affordability that made us make that choice. If I could buy that in Texas, specifically in eastern Texas in the Piney Woods area where they get a little bit more rain, I would probably stay in this state for a variety of reasons. No state income tax and, and some other things. But Texas is just expensive for good quality land compared to the rest of the nation even. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing if you're a landowner, but if you're looking to try to do what this guy's asking about, it's kind of tough. Um, some other states that I see promise in uh, is right up there through the center of the country, Tennessee. But I'll tell you what, I want to be up in the mountains. If you look at deaths from tornadoes, Tennessee leads the nation. So I don't like being out in the big open fields of Tennessee because I'm just asking for a problem. So I'm going to get up in the up in the high hills, foothills, and mountainous regions. I'm going to, you know, I always uh, am very cautious about tornadoes since. Uh, I guess it was the 2000 or 1990, 1999, we had a huge storm here in Texas, and houses less than a mile away from me were absolutely leveled to the foundation. I mean, it looked like a bulldozer came in and pushed the house away. I don't even know where the pieces of the house, there weren't even rubble, they were gone. And uh, after seeing that, it's always been a concern of mine. So I, it's one of the things I look at. Um, I'll tell you what, the Dakotas, it gets cold, uh, but there's a lot of affordable land, a lot going for it. Um, there's a ton of affordable land still in the Dakotas. Uh, way more than, you know, their neighbors to the uh, west, Wyoming and Montana. Great states, but expensive land. Colorado, um, not quite the libertarian government I'm looking for, but a ton going for it, but very expensive land. New Mexico, affordable land, desert conditions, where the land is affordable. So that middle United States is kind of the last little oasis. I'll tell you another thing, though. 
Uh, goodly, good laws, quite libertarian, not, not, no state is libertarian in this country, right? But leaning toward the libertarian side, great gun laws, uh, huge Second Amendment state, fairly well run, lots of money, but lots of areas that are still affordable, Florida. Right? You got hurricanes to worry about, but, you know, you're always gonna have something to worry about anywhere you go. But Florida has a lot of, you know, it's not hard to pick up a five-acre plot in a lot of parts of Florida where you can really, uh, really provide yourself a pretty good homestead, have low taxes out in the country. Now, you're not going to get a beach house, right? And you're not going to get a lake house really affordable there. But if you'll look out in the, uh, the, the, the still the underdeveloped parts of Florida and Georgia, you'll find some decent properties as well. So, uh, good questions. That's the... Uh, uh, I'll give you one more because it's quick. Can you offer advice for right-eye dominant, left-handed person when it comes to shooting sports? Learn to shoot right-handed. That's the end. No more. There is no other way. If, you are, uh, if you're right-eye dominant, you need to shoot right-handed. If you're left-eye dominant, you shoot left-handed. Okay, Craig's monopolized things today, but he had good questions. So let's go on from there to somebody else. Here's a good one. Um, comes from... Uh, Dal Halfworth, he calls himself, and uh, says, questions about the types of mulch sold in bags. I'm looking to buy some mulch from Albertsons because it's clean and I can get a good price on it. They have a couple different types. One is pine, and I'm not sure what the other is. I searched the forums and couldn't find an answer. I'm looking for one that won't change the pH level in my garden. Do you have any thoughts on it? Pine can increase acid levels in your soil. Pine mulch can and often will do that. Uh, as will pine needle mulch. If you uh, look in the forest regions of our country where there's stands of pine, on the edge of those pine stands are often where you find acid-loving plants like uh, blueberries, blackberries, and uh, uh, cranberries further north. So I, I don't like pine for mulch. Uh, especially it's a sole form of mulch. If it's mixed with other things, like if I'm using a shredder, and I'm creating my own mulch, and I'm using hardwood and pine and softwoods and, and uh, woody herbs and all kinds of stuff, and it's mixed together, I'm okay with it, because that's natural, uh, to have a, that, you know, that proportional mix. Uh, and that'll help go in all different directions. It creates uh, diversity. But if I'm going to go buy bagged mulch and put it in my garden, I want something that's basically inert from a pH level, uh, that stays put, that's very affordable, uh, that's long-lasting, breaks down well, and the best mulch I can tell you like that for hardwood is, or, or for a wood-based mulch is cypress. So if I'm going to buy mulch from the store and put it in my garden, which I do here, I will never do that in Arkansas because I have too much organic matter available for free. I won't need it. But here, for my little raised beds, you know, about two bags of uh, mulch will cover a raised bed deep and do a really great job, and do a great job of moisture retention, and I'm out five bucks, because I just get them for about 250 a bag. So if you're going to buy mulch in bags, I would look at Cypress, and uh, if Albertson's got a great deal, great, but check pricing at Home Depot and Lowe's. Generally, the retail on a, a big bag of Cypress mulch is about 313 and uh, when they put them on sale, they'll go anywhere between 250 and 275 and I'll go buy 20 bags when they do that. I just stack it behind my uh, shed. One warning with Cypress mulch or any mulch in a bag, when you stack it somewhere in bags, um, if it's anywhere outside, uh, fire ants love to make their nests in it, and sometimes you'll open a bag of mulch, and it'll be full of fire ants. Ask me how I know. How do you get rid of them? Take the bag, dump about a five-gallon bucket full of mulch, 
fill it up with water. Let the ants drown. Later come back and use your mulch. By the way, when you're mulching, that's a great way to do it. Get a five-gallon bucket. Uh, now, when you're just doing like a whole bed and there's nothing planted, you're just dumping it, just dump the bags and spread it out. But when you're using your hands to go around plants, put the mulch in a bucket first, soak it for just a couple minutes, dump the excess water out, hold it, it'll hold right in there, and then when you mulch, it'll be so much easier to do. It'll, it'll, it'll clump together better. It'll be easier to set where you want it. It's just a simple little technique that I picked up and, uh, I picked it up by accident, uh, drowning ants. And when I, after I drowned the ants, those vicious little red things, God, I hate those little, ugh, I'm not gonna say the word today. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but when I, when I did that, I just noticed how much more, uh, convenient it was to do my mulching activities after that. So, uh, there's a little side tip on that question. Good question, man. Here's a question from a guy called Corey. <clears throat> Corey basically says, um, he wants to know my thoughts on using crawl spaces and attics in homes for storage because he's like most people, three bed, two bath, two car garage, you know, basic suburban home. And when you start prepping, you always start to run out of space. So he's looking for more space. Concerned about how stable the environment is and temperature swings, especially the high temperature swings in the summer. Um, you're right. I mean, the attic space is great. And um, <clears throat> what I suggest people do is put as much decking up in their attic as, as they can, as they're comfortable with. Like uh, you do it with cheap particle board or what have you. The more decking, the easier it is to store things, and the less likely you are to put a leg through the roof when you're up in your attic. I recommend you put in some attic fans. Uh, the solar attic fans are even better, and that will help keep the temperature down. Then one of the things that you can do, is take stuff that you store that you don't use often, especially seasonal things like Christmas, uh, Thanksgiving decorations, you know, those types of things, um, and put those up there. Put those up there first. And what that does is whatever space they were occupying, frees them up for your preps, which is more likely to be in a temperature-controlled environment. Then you can also put some of your preps up there. Uh, just know it does shorten uh, your time. But if you put certain things up there that aren't really, you know, like your extra batteries, uh, your, well, I wouldn't do batteries, honestly, because the heat bothers me with batteries, but um, there's flashlights and, and, and gear and, and stuff that's not either explosive or, like, you know, uh, battery-powered. Um, anything that's not food-related, that would be the next thing that I would put up there. And he says that he thinks maybe the crawl spaces would be more uh, temperature-stable than the attic. So I'm, I'm assuming what you're talking about is a two-story house where there's actually a crawl space between the first and second floor. If that's the case, absolutely you're going to have uh, reasonable temperature control there. It's not going to be that hot there. But my big advice on this, deck it with, uh, with, with particle board or plywood. Put ventilation in the roof to control the temperature and stick to the things that are least affected by temperature, the space you free up when you move those things up there, utilize that for uh, your other preps that are more temperature sensitive. So that's the way, that's basically what, exactly what we do here. Here's an interesting one. Let's take a look at this one because it's about gold. And remember, I'm not a gold expert. I just, I believe in owning some gold as part of your uh, financial portfolio, but I've recently stated that I think we're going to see gold prices drop over the next few months for a variety of reasons. 
This guy says, what do you think's going on with gold sales? This guy's name is Matt. He's a filler background. In one of your podcasts, you're talking about decreased demand for gold and feeling the price is too high and will probably drop. <clears throat> I got to thinking about this in light of a flood of advertising for, uh, on the radio for gold. I listen to talk radio, and they run gold ads constantly, much more than I remember in the past. I'm wondering if gold sellers think the same thing. Gold is going to drop. Seems like they might be doing something similar to short selling, except they actually have the gold. If they bought the gold previously at a lower rate, the price is peaking. What better time to sell off the gold at a heavy profit? Wait for the price to drop, buy back the gold while it's low, keep it until the price rises again, and uh, then you have cash profit, and you have the asset gold that will protect some of your cash. If the price jumps, do it again. Do you think this is the game? Short, Sort of a short-selling strategy. Um, sort of, but not really. Let me explain something. A lot of these big gold houses that you hear selling this gold, they don't necessarily have a giant warehouse of gold. They have a rotational inventory. Uh, they're setting their price on a daily basis. They have a base inventory that they maintain. But as they sell gold, they buy more. They're making a profit on the transaction. That's, that's how they make most of their money. There's some buy and hold go, that goes on, but if you just practice that strategy as a business model, you can get hurt really bad because you'll never be able to dump your inventory fast enough as gold prices drop. So there's multiple suppliers of gold that interact with each other, and they keep the gold moving around. Most of these companies don't make money by buying gold at $500 an ounce and selling at $1,000 an ounce. That's your game. You take the risk. As the, as the individual investor, they make money by moving the gold, just like a bank makes money by moving money. So they're charging a fee per ounce of gold sold. It's the easiest way to think about it. That's it. So why are there so many ads for gold right now? Because the stock market is in the crapper, and people are scared and looking for alternatives, and gold is hot. The reason that gold prices are up so much is because there's been that many buyers. I just think the buying is beginning to wane. But since it's a hot item, they're advertising it heavily because they're doing well. And they want to keep doing well. So it was just like, God, I guess about three years ago, when the real estate market in Texas was just hot. And all you heard were real estate advertisements, constantly. Now, was it because the real estate agent knew the market was going to drop and owned a bunch of houses they wanted to dump? No. It's because the business was good at the time, and there were a lot of buyers out there, and because there were a lot of buyers, there was a lot of competition among the players for the buyers. That's why the gold advertising is crazy right now, because there's a lot of buyers, and more and more people have come into the business and are fighting for market share. So they're advertising to capture a piece of market share. So I don't see it as a short-selling thing because, again, their business model is not holding large quantities of gold. It's moving around large quantities of gold. They can make a lot of money if gold goes down. They can make a lot of money if gold goes up as long as people still buy from them like any other business. And just like any other business, if you had a reselling business and you resold patio furniture, you would keep a certain reasonable expectation of inventory so that any given day when you got an order, you could fill it, or any given week, you could fill a week's worth of orders. But you would go to your suppliers as your inventory fluctuated and restock the things that you sold out of. 
most gold houses pretty much work the same way, especially the dealers that you – now, somebody's going to write me and say, I've been in the gold industry, and you know what you're talking about. I worked here, and we had $20 million billion worth of gold or whatever. I'm talking about the people that sell you coins on the radio. All right? These guys are moving, moving product, and they make money when they move the product. And they get a certain um, risk tolerance that a normal business doesn't get. If my patio furniture sits long enough and becomes outdated, it may become impossible for me to dump my inventory. The beauty of being in the gold or silver industry is there's always a spot price on the bullion. And you can always liquidate your inventory. You might lose some money, you might make some money, but you always have the option. Especially if you keep the inventory relatively low to your total annual volume. So that's what those guys are doing. They're not trying to short sell the market. They're just trying to sell as much as they can while they can sell it. And since they're charging a fee based on the sale price, the higher gold goes, the more money they make because the higher their total sales are. That's it. Here's an interesting one. This is one of these ones that you go, eh, it's supposed to make you think, and it really doesn't have to make you think that hard if you just be rational. It comes from Robert. Robert says, you've probably been asked several times, what do you think of the right to bear arms as it applies to weapons outside of guns? Should people be allowed to own tanks, fighter jets, tomahawk missiles? I understand some people say that the founders could not imagine weapons of such mass destruction, but they did let the populace maintain the most technically advanced weapons of the day. And those weapons were not only meant for hunting, but for, for defense of not only foreign governments, but need to be our own government. Who would decide what weapons are beyond the scope of intended uh, for impeding the right to keep and bear arms? Thanks. Love the show and the forum. Keep up the great work, Robert. Okay. Uh, no, I don't think a private citizen should have access to a Tomahawk missile. All right? Primarily because it is a publicly owned weapon of defense or offense, depending on how the government chooses to use it. In other words... The only way that we have Tomahawk missiles is by pulling public funds. Right, so there's one little loophole that I'm trying to put in there to make this answer easier to give, because I get the catch-22 you're trying to put me into. In 1800, if I wanted to own a couple cannons um, and, and put them around my, uh, my ranch and say they were for defending myself from the British or whoever, um, I was able to do that. Uh, when the Gatling gun came out uh, in, in the later 1800s, if I wanted a Gatling gun, I could go get one. Um, and that was considered as part of the right to keep and bear arms. But we got to go back to the founders. We can't call all the way up to the Gatling gun. we got, we got to look at what the founders intended. My belief is this. The, the founders intended for the, the Second Amendment of the Constitution to guarantee individual sovereignty and the right to self-defense. Uh, and that arms were intended to mean, okay, uh, individual weapons, handguns and rifles, and any other thing that you might carry, a sword, for instance. But arms, as they pertain to the militia, were meant for individual weapons. In other words, a Tomahawk missile is not an individual weapon. A fighter jet or a tank is not an individual weapon. It requires a crew. Um, I just don't think that's what those guys intended. Now, the fact that people were at times able to own things like, you know, uh, machine guns, uh, and, and I don't mean with the class, uh, you know, three and, and the way you could still sort of do it now. I mean, you could at one time go out and buy anything you wanted. Just because you could do that doesn't mean it was the intention of the Second Amendment. I actually would put machine guns, though, into classification of, if people want them, if they're law-abiding citizens, if they haven't given up their rights, they haven't harmed anybody else, 
No problem. I have no problem with fully automatic weapons being owned by the public. We get into things like a Tomahawk missile. Now we're in a position where there is no justification for individual self-defense with a Tomahawk missile. It just, it, it does not apply. It's a tool of, of modern warfare. I don't think that was intended by the founders. Now, who decides? Well, I think we take the baseline, and that is the individual right to bear arms clearly applies to long arms, handguns, swords, knives, clubs, anything that one individual would carry around to defend himself that would be you know, reasonably considered an arm by the term and its use at the time, and the modern equivalent. So it was a flintlock rifle at the time, and today that's a you know that's a that's an AR-15. They're equivalent to, to the time. Okay? Once we get past the equivalence, then society as a whole decides through our republic. So who decides is the people. The people in control of their government. I know we don't control the government the way we should, but that's the way it should be. So it should be up to the total population of the United States where we draw the line. As long as we don't go sub of the equivalent, because that's constitutionally protected. And then here's a hard one to accept. Um, I don't think this will ever happen. I would sure as hell fight it tooth and nail. But it would be completely legal under United States constitutional law to pass a constitutional amendment using two-thirds of the states that nullify the Second Amendment. I didn't say it was good. I didn't say I wanted it. I said it would be legal. That anything in the Constitution can be changed. Not that it should be, but it can. It's very difficult to do. And I think we need to take any kind of constitutional convention very, very seriously because there are threats to existing amendments. And one of the things we always have to remember, once the Tenth Amendment was passed, part of the Bill of Rights, most of the amendments, not all, but most of the amendments after the Tenth improved, increased the power of government and restricted the power of the people. Very few times after that was the Constitution amendment amended to further liberty, right? Or as Barack Obama called it, negative liberty. Meaning that uh, the Constitution basically tells the government what it cannot do to you. It doesn't tell the government what it must do for you. And that's exactly the kind of Constitution we have, and that's the kind of Constitution I want. So I don't disagree with Barack Obama about that interpretation. I just don't have an issue with it, where apparently he he thinks it's a problem. Um, So there you go. Best I can do on that one. I understand the catch-22 that you're trying to put us in. It's an interesting thought experiment. But when it comes right down to it, um, I don't think it's in the interest of the world for an individual singly to control something like a Tomahawk missile. A tank. I don't quite feel the same way about a tank. I think if you want a tank, you can have a tank. People think I'm absolutely nuts right now, but I know people that own tanks. So it's legal to own a tank. It's the armament on the tank that's the issue. And how far do we let that go? Again, we use our process as a republic, and as a people together, we determine through the process of creating common law where that line is. There you go. Best I can do. I know it won't make everybody happy, but, folks, we're not going to skin that cat ever. We're not going to solve that problem ever. I'm just worried about keeping arms meaning what they mean today. Here's a car question. I guess I'm Ed, Ed Wallace, the uh, the car guy today. Um, 
he's a local guy if you're not from Dallas. I guess maybe you wouldn't know that. The guy says, I discovered your podcast about two weeks ago. Love it. Listen to about 30 hours of content, some episodes more than once. Hey, my wife and I are beginning to look at for a new car. I have a truck already. We shopped the hybrids, shopped the decent mile-per-hour gas engine cars, and recently became aware of the Jetta TD, uh, TDI via Mother Earth News, but also from your older show intros. What do you recommend from the above name options? What was your experience with the diesel? Do you foresee the best value? What do you see as the best value over the next decade? Um, I'll tell you what. If you look at resale values, and this is why I made my decision, if you look at the resale value of the Jetta diesels going back years and years and years, they are rock solid. They depreciate less than any other vehicle out there. So when I purchased my car, I looked for a high mileage, high-quality vehicle with a high resale value so that if I ever got into a bad financial constraints, the vehicle was sellable. Even during the time I paid off a five-year note in three years, even during the period of time during the payoff, once I had one year of payments in, which equated to about two, I was no longer in a position where I couldn't dump the vehicle if I had to and even pull a little bit of cash out of it. So I'm big on looking at the performance of the vehicle and then also looking at the resellability of the vehicle, even in tough times. The other side of diesel is that diesel gives you more power uh, with less input because of what's called a torque curve. If you look at a torque curve, and torque is what actually, horsepower is great, but torque is what moves you down the road. Torque is what pulls things. And if you look at a gas motor, when you look at a torque curve, as you see the engine rev, you see the torque curve go way up real fast, peak at a certain RPM, and then begin to fall off almost equally as fast. And if you look at a diesel, you see the torque curve go up really slow, level, and stay constant all the way through the RPM scale. So diesels have this amazing ability to have, I have a car with a 110 horsepower motor, right, which is very light as far as, as cars are considered. You know, it's not a very powerful car. But I'll be honest, I've run the car at 120 miles an hour. And at 120 miles an hour, I still estimated that my gas consumption was somewhere in the 30s. And it ran like a dream. I don't, I, I, I cannot recommend an electric hybrid, what's available right now over a Jetta diesel. The Jetta diesel is almost equivalent in mileage. It is equivalent in emissions, so it's a clean car. Not that I'm worried about CO2, folks, but when it comes to overall pollution scales, it's one of the cleanest burning vehicles on the planet, and I love mine. So I could not recommend the Jetta diesel highly enough. As for the other vehicles, I haven't driven any of the hybrids, so I don't want to be unfair to them, but I think my car looks cooler than a Prius. I think it looks a lot cooler than a Prius. And uh, I'll tell you what, this is the way I feel about it. I read an article about the car before I bought it from Car and Driver magazine, and it said, you know, the Jetta Diesel TDI at about $25,000 sticker price pretty much is embarrasses any other vehicle on the road under $30,000. I feel the same way. It's a smaller car, but, God, the quality is there. So, um, sorry I can't tell you about the other vehicles, but I'll tell you what. If you buy one of the Jetta diesels, as long as you can afford it, you are not going to regret your decision. And in the worst of circumstances, it'll burn corn oil, right? Not just biodiesel. If you ever had to, I don't recommend it. It's not a good idea. And if it gets cold out, it can really cause you grief. But you can burn any oil in a, in a Jetta diesel. Uh, so if we ever get a real shit at the fan, um, 
So I think you're going to be able to find diesel long-term or diesel equivalents long-term easier than gasoline. So that's another big thing going for it. So I love diesels. The only reason my truck's not a diesel is uh, when we bought the truck, uh, we had some limited financing. We were getting kind of on that get rid of debt type thing. We only bought it because we needed a new truck due to some other circumstances. We had a, uh, a single cab truck, and we were going to go down to one vehicle, and we could not use a single cab truck that way. So I got a really great deal on a gas truck. If I were buying a truck today, I would buy a diesel truck, and I would bo- have both vehicles running diesel. And uh, if my truck wasn't in, like, great shape, we only have like 78,000 miles on it, and it's in beautiful shape. It's been paid for for four years. If it wasn't for that, I might go out and buy a diesel truck today. But because it's just paid for and, and running perfectly, uh, we, we can't see the additional expense right now. But one day, like all vehicles, it'll get old enough, and if, if the world is still held, hold, held together by then, I'll buy a new truck or a good used truck, and it'll be a diesel. And I think you'll find diesels hold their value better in trucks as well. So let's see if we can put one more in before we sign off today. Uh, here's an interesting one. Uh, a, guy, a guy named Nicholas says, how will Chili's earthquake affect us at the grocery store? I don't know. It, it can't be a good thing. We do get quite a bit of produce from Chile, um, or Chile. <laughs> uh, there's, uh, it's not at the level that it would affect us if there was a major catastrophe in Argentina. We, we import a hell of a lot more food from Argentina than Chile, um, but it'll probably have some minor effect. Uh, due to the fact that we import from so many places, and due to the fact that, 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 that Chile is still going to be doing a lot of exportation because they're going to need money. I mean, that's one of the other ways to look at this. Um, the, the countryside where they grow all the food hasn't really been that affected. they got a lot of hungry people there, but they're still going to be doing a lot of exportation, so it probably won't hurt us that much. But the second question that Nicholas asks is the one that I, I really am going to take here. Uh, if Monsanto controls 90% of the seed supply, why hasn't the U.S. broken them up as a monopoly? Tim Foyle has me see a conspiracy. What do you think? Uh, because Monsanto is very smart. And I know it's Monsanto, but I don't like Monsanto, so I call him Monsanto. It's my little dig at him. So those that want to correct my pronunciation, I know very well what I'm saying. So these jackasses at Monsanto aren't stupid. So what they do is they control the seed supply through things like um, subcorporations and licensing agreements. So what they'll do is they'll license their technology to another company that actually sells the seeds, and then if they have any questions about monopolization, they point and say, well, that company is its own company. They're just choosing to use our product, and they sell other products too. There you go. All of a sudden, it's not a monopoly anymore. It's the free market choosing the product, and the product is going through multiple channels. Uh, this is sort of like, you know, you say you break up the monopoly of local phone service back when people actually gave a damn about local phone service. Well, the Bells were still providing all the local phone service. They were just being resold through competitive local exchange carriers, Celex. Uh, but the phone service itself was still coming from the same place, and the, the Bell company was still making money on every single line. Right now, we have deregulation in the electrical market, right, because we don't want electrical monopolies. But your electricity, if you, like, I use a company here in Texas called Amigo, because they were the cheapest I could find, right? Well, Amigo is still getting its electricity from the same place it was coming from when I had TXU. The same people are still generating the power. The same people are still making some money, 
but it's going through multiple channels. So the way Monsanto, Monsanto, jackasses, the way they um, handle and keep out of antitrust is, one, through using multiple distribution channels, and, two, you ain't going to get um, a federal indictment or a federal uh, evaluation, even, of a company like Monsanto because they have half of the freaking Department of Agriculture as their former employees. They have so much clout inside the government, you're not really going to see anything. It's not even a conspiracy. It's wide open. You can look at the revolving door from Monsanto into the government, back to Monsanto. Hell, Dick Cheney served on the board of directors for Sumanis, which is a subsidiary of Monsanto. So it just isn't going to happen under current conditions. But they do control, and let's be clear about what I mean when I say 90% of the seed supply. 90% of the seed supply that produces the four big crops used in commercial agriculture. If we look at the seed market for vegetable growers that grow tomatoes in their backyard, they're nowhere near that. But when we look at soy, rape, which is canola, corn, right, and wheat, when we look at that, Monsanto literally has a death grip on the market. That's part of why the Chinese, as I said earlier this week, have said, yeah, we're going to do the genetically modified thing. We're going to take care of doing it ourselves internally in China because China doesn't want that monopoly to exist. They want a piece of the pie, so to speak, and they don't want to do it as Monsanto's lapdog. In some ways, you got to look at that and say, oh, good for them. But on the other hand, it's just more genetically modified food out there in the biosphere. Now, I want to bring up right here at the end a debate that's going on from an earlier podcast this week. I'll put a link back to it so you can look at it. Because the guy that started it wants you guys to see it. He wants you to to have the other side of the opinion. He posted a uh, a link to an article in Reason Magazine that stated that um, GMOs are a good thing because they've solved the world hunger problem up till now. And he's basically copped out on it now saying, "Well, well, it's not really good, but it's a necessary evil. We have to have genetically modified foods or people will starve and die. I don't believe that. And, and this guy's not supposed to be big for free markets. Let me explain to you very clearly as we end today why there's no such thing as a genetically modified organism that is consistent with a free market economy. In a free market economy, you're free to do anything you want as long as it doesn't directly harm your competitor other than through, the, through competition. Okay, So if I go out and I cut my prices and that hurts your business, that is a free market principle. I'm entitled to do it. And either I can be efficient and make a profit that way, or I can be inefficient and eventually go out of business. We do have monopoly concerns, and when companies get too big, we do forcefully break them up. And I do think that's a good thing, because one company having too much power is a problem. I know some people say, Jack, that's anti-free market. I don't believe it is. I believe that once one company has a death hold on a segment, There is no free market anymore. The free market means that a little guy can go into the business and compete. Right? That's free market. So, when you look at a free market principle, you have to say that if a company takes an action, such as going into a competitor's uh, database and deleting customers from their database, that... It's not a free market principle. That is not competition. That is criminal activity. You're damaging an asset that your competitor has. 
So I can't, if you would say I have Jack's pool store and you have your pool store, I can't go to your pool store and burn it down with a Molotov cocktail and say, hey, it's a free market, it's all, it's competition, right? Because I'm damaging your store. If the guy that hacks into your database and deletes your customers from your database, you can't stay in touch with them anymore, has damaged your database, right? Does that make sense? That, that would not be free market. I think we can all agree with that. Well, okay, now I plant a great big field of corn that I plan to sell is organic GMO-free corn. Monsanto gives a farmer down the road from me genetically modified corn. His corn cross-pollinates my corn and destroys my inventory of GMO-free organic corn. It is now not free of genetically modified organisms. So when once you take a trait that can be passed through the process of pollinization, interbreeding of a similar species, and put it into the biosphere, you are damaging the inventory of the competition. It is absolutely no different than Jack hacking into a competitor's uh, database and deleting his customers from his database. It's the damage of inventory. It's actually changing the inventory. It would be like you have a fur coat store and I come in with a can of spray paint and spray paint paint all over your coats. You can't sell them now. Certainly can't sell them as what they were before I interfered. There's a principle in agriculture that if I have an existing farm with no fences and you buy an adjacent piece of land and you bring livestock with you, let's say cattle, it's not my responsibility to fence out your cattle. It's your responsibility to fence your cattle in. That is an ancient agricultural principle. If you read Leviticus in the Bible, and again, I'm not a religious man, but I know a lot of a lot from the Bible and from other books. Um, but if you read Leviticus, you'll find precedence in Leviticus, right? One of the oldest books in the Bible for that type of thing, about one ox scoring another ox. And that's what it's about. What you possess, it's your obligation to contain and keep out of your neighbor's land or farm. Whatever you own, you are responsible for. So, you know, Annie Gunners would say, if you leave your house unlocked to keep a gun on the wall, somebody breaks and steals your gun and shoots somebody with it, you didn't take reasonable methods for security. And I would agree on this one that you're somewhat responsible for the crime committed with that weapon, because it was up to you to secure it. You took no, you you didn't lock the doors even, you made it visible to the window. Let's say you set it and leaned it on your tree out in your front lawn. That's irresponsible activity. You have a reasonable expectation to keep something like that that's dangerous secure. Well, can't do it with genetically modified organisms. The second they're planted, they have the potential to do harm to everything around them. They're not free markets. So, Mr. Asplan, and that's why I called this guy Asplan with some of his reasonings. He said, that's the ultimate survival podcast disc. Well, you've earned it because the entire principle that you're bringing up about free markets is absolutely, totally destroyed by the concept of patenting a life form that then has the ability to go out and affect another life form. And what Monsanto has done with this is when this happens, the guys like Percy Smyser up in Canada, when his field got cross-pollinated with their rape, they sued him for infringing on their patent. That is not free market. That's why I'm against GMOs. Uh, I think I went a little bit long there, but, you know, I just...
just pisses me off when somebody throws around a term like free market but doesn't really understand what the hell it's supposed to mean. It's like people that throw around free speech, and you think that you should be able to go out and post any comment you want on somebody else's blog, and if they delete it, that's not free speech. That is free speech. It's their blog, their speech that's protected. You want to say what you want to say, you put it on your blog. And people go, that's not free speech, Jack. Okay, so should I be able to come over to your house? Let's say your name is Tom. Should I be able to go in on the front of your house with a black can of spray paint and spray Tom sucks on your house? And then, if you wash the paint off of your house, I say, hey, Tom violated my free speech. Does that make any sense at all? How is owning a website any different than that? It's your property. So people need to understand, when they throw around the term free with anything after it, freedom only exists if it exists for everybody. So if you're going to have free speech, then somebody else that owns some form of, of property or content must also have free speech, which is free of your ability to infringe upon it. Does that make sense? I hope it does. It's the same thing with free markets. Free markets can only exist... If the competitor is protected from intentional damage to their property. And when I grow corn on my property, that corn is mine. I own it. And when somebody brings in an organism that puts an undesirable trait into it, then my property's been damaged. I can't make it any simpler than that. And with that, I'm going to sign off today. And, folks, remember the solution to that problem Grow your own, protect your own, and understand what you're growing. Save your own seed and become part of the solution. Overall, I like doing the shows with the questions and the feedback and stuff like that. Went deep into some problems today. I try not to do that that much, but hey, it's a Friday. So, feel good about your weekend coming up. And I'm going to tell you guys something on the air today. Um, and if you didn't hang into the end, you don't get to know this. Uh, and that is, I'm going to give you a number. The number is... 3310. Write it down. Remember it. Save it. 3310. What is that number? Thursday, yesterday, I was on Christy Sikowski's show, uh, which is called Truth Brigade. And I put out an offer on her show for people listening that could join the Member Support Brigade for $35. If you listen today and you're not an MSB member yet, you can use 3310 and get your first year of the MSB for 35 bucks. So that's my little weekend gift to you. If you're already an existing member, no, you can't use it. It's for new members only. It wasn't even for the general audience, but that code is still open. Christy kind of beat me up and said, hey, my show gets rebroadcast. Help out my people here. So it's open through the weekend, and then it's gone forever. Um, there you go. It's up to you if you want to use it. And with that, I will sign off. I do thank you for tuning in today, and I want you to remember always, keep on building that better life. There's tough decisions we have to make. We talked about them today, like, do I save money or do I pay on debt? There's always checks and balances, pluses and minuses and all these decisions. Trust your, trust your gut. Trust your gut. Enjoy your weekend. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, Makes or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.